Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, Chapter 16 and 17, from the Jewels of Opar. And now, Chapter 16, Tarzan again leads the Mangani. Ahmed Zek, with two of his followers, had circled far to the south to intercept the flight of his deserting lieutenant, Werper. Others had spread out in various directions, so that a vast circle had been formed by them during the night, and now they were beating in toward the center. Ahmed and the two with him halted for a short rest just before noon. They squatted beneath the trees upon the southern edge of a clearing. The chief of the raiders was in ill humor. To have been outwitted by an unbeliever was bad enough, but to have, at the same time, lost the jewels upon which he had set his avaricious heart was altogether too much. Allah must indeed be angry with his servant. Well, he still had the woman. She would bring a fair price in the north, and there was, too, the buried treasure beside the ruins of the Englishman's house. A slight noise in the jungle upon the opposite side of the clearing brought Ahmed Zek to immediate and alert attention. He gathered his rifle in readiness for instant use, at the same time motioning his followers to silence and concealment. Crouching behind the bushes, the three waited, their eyes fastened upon the far side of the open space. Presently the foliage parted, and a woman's face appeared, glancing fearfully from side to side. A moment later, evidently satisfied that no immediate danger lurked before her, she stepped out into the clearing, in full view of the Arab. Ahmed Zek caught his breath with a muttered exclamation of incredulity and imprecation. The woman was the prisoner he had thought safely guarded back at his camp. Apparently she was alone, but Ahmed Zek waited that he might make sure of it before seizing her. Slowly Jane Clayton started across the clearing. Twice already, since she had quitted the village of the raiders, had she barely escaped the fangs of carnivora, and once she had almost stumbled into the path of one of the searchers. Though she was almost despairing of ever reaching safety, she still was determined to fight on until death or success terminated her endeavors. But as the Arabs watched her from the safety of their concealment, and Ahmed Zek noted with satisfaction that she was walking directly into his clutches, another pair of eyes looked down upon the entire scene from the foliage of an adjacent tree. Puzzled, troubled eyes they were, for all their gray and savage glint, for their owner was struggling with an intangible suggestion of the familiarity of the face and figure of the woman below him. A sudden crashing of the bushes at the point from which Jane Clayton had emerged into the clearing brought her to a sudden stop, and attracted the attention of the Arabs and the watcher in the tree to the same point. The woman wheeled about to see what new danger menaced her from behind, and as she did so, a great anthropoid ape waddled into view. Behind him came another, and another, but Lady Greystoke did not wait to learn how many more of these hideous creatures were so close upon her trail. With a smothered scream, she rushed toward the opposite jungle, and as she reached the bushes there, Ahmed Zek and his two henchmen rose up and seized her. At the same instant, a naked, brown giant dropped from the branches of a tree at the right of the clearing. Turning toward the astonished apes, he gave voice to a short volley of low gutturals, and without waiting to note the effect of his words upon them, wheeled and charged for the Arabs. 
Ahmed Zek was dragging Jane Clayton toward his tethered horse. His two men were hastily unfastening all three mounts. The woman, struggling to escape the Arab, turned and saw the ape-man running toward her. A glad light of hope illuminated her face. "'John!' she cried. "'Thank God you've come in time!' Behind Tarzan came the great apes, wondering, but obedient to his summons. The Arabs saw that they would not have time to mount and make their escape before the beast and the man were upon them. Ahmed Zek recognized the latter as the redoubtable enemy of such as he, and he saw, too, in the circumstance, an opportunity to rid himself forever of the menace of the ape-man's presence. Calling to his men to follow his example, he raised his rifle and leveled it upon the charging giant. His followers, acting with no less alacrity than himself, fired almost simultaneously, and with the reports of the rifles, Tarzan of the apes and two of his hairy henchmen pitched forward among the jungle grasses. The noise of the rifle shots brought the balance of the apes to a wondering pause, and taking advantage of their momentary distraction, Ahmed Zek and his fellows leaped to their horses' backs and galloped away with the now hopeless and grief-stricken woman. Back to the village they rode, and once again Lady Greystoke found herself incarcerated in the filthy little hut from which she had thought to have escaped for good. But this time she was not only guarded by an additional sentry, but bound as well. Singly and in twos, the searchers who had ridden out with Ahmed Zek upon the trail of the Belgian returned empty-handed. With the report of each, the raider's rage and chagrin increased, until he was in such a transport of ferocious anger that none dared approach him. Threatening and cursing, Ahmed Zek paced up and down the floor of his silken tent, but his temper served him not. Werper was gone, and with him the fortune in scintillating gems which had aroused the cupidity of his chief and placed the sentence of death upon the head of the lieutenant. With the escape of the Arabs, the great apes had turned their attention to their fallen comrades. One was dead, but another, and the great white ape, still breathed. The hairy monsters gathered about these two, grumbling and muttering after the fashion of their kind. Tarzan was the first to regain consciousness. Sitting up, he looked about him. Blood was flowing from a wound in his shoulder. The shock had thrown him down and dazed him, but he was far from dead. Rising slowly to his feet, he let his eyes wander toward the spot where last he had seen the she, who had aroused within his savage breast such strange emotions. "'Where is she?' he asked. "'The Tarmangani took her away,' replied one of the apes. "'Who are you who speak the language of the Mangani?' "'I am Tarzan,' replied the ape-man, "'mighty hunter, greatest of fighters. "'When I roar, the jungle is silent and trembles with terror. "'I am Tarzan of the apes. "'I have been away, but now I have come back to my people.' "'Yes,' spoke up an old ape. "'He is Tarzan. I know him. "'It is well that he has come back. "'Now we shall have good hunting.' The other apes came closer and sniffed at the ape-man. Tarzan stood very still, his fangs half-bared, and his muscles tense and ready for action. But there was none there to question his right to be with them, and presently the inspection satisfactorily concluded. The apes again returned to their attention, and the other survivor. He, too, was but slightly wounded, a bullet, grazing his skull, having stunned him. 
so that when he regained consciousness, he was apparently as fit as ever. The apes told Tarzan that they had been traveling toward the east when the set spore of the she had attracted them, and they had stalked her. Now they wished to continue upon their interrupted march, but Tarzan preferred to follow the Arabs and take the woman from them. After a considerable argument, it was decided that they should first hunt toward the east for a few days, and then return and search for the Arabs. And as time is of little moment to the ape folk, Tarzan acceded to their demands, he himself having reverted to a mental state but little superior to their own. Another circumstance which decided him to postpone pursuit of the Arabs was the painfulness of his wound. It would be better to wait until that had healed before he pitted himself again against the guns of the Tarmangani. And so, as Jane Clayton was pushed into her prison hut and her hands and feet securely bound, her natural protector roamed off toward the east in company with a score of hairy monsters, with whom he rubbed shoulders as familiarly as a few months before he had mingled with his immaculate fellow members of one of London's most select and exclusive clubs. But all the time there lurked in the back of his injured brain a troublesome conviction that he had no business where he was, that he should be, for some unaccountable reason, elsewhere, and among another sort of creature. Also, there was the compelling urge to be upon the scent of the Arabs, undertaking the rescue of the woman who had appealed so strongly to his savage sentiments, though the thought-word which naturally occurred to him in the contemplation of the venture was capture, rather than rescue. To him, she was as any other jungle she, and he had set his heart upon her as his mate. For an instant, as he had approached closer to her in the clearing where the Arabs had seized her, the subtle aroma which had first aroused his desires in the hut that had imprisoned her had fallen upon his nostrils, had told him that he had found the creature for whom he had developed so sudden and inexplicable a passion. The matter of the pouch of jewels also occupied his thoughts to some extent, so that he found a double urge for his return to the camp of the raiders. He would obtain possession of both his pretty pebbles and the she. Then he would return to the great apes, with his new mate and his baubles, and leading his hairy companions into a far wilderness beyond the ken of man, live out his life, hunting and battling among the lower orders after the only manner in which he now recollected. He spoke to his fellow apes upon the matter, in an attempt to persuade them to accompany him, but all except Taglet and Chulk refused. The latter, Chulk, was young and strong, endowed with a greater intelligence than his fellows, and therefore the possessor of better developed powers of imagination. To him the expedition savored of adventure, and so appealed strongly. With Taglet there was another incentive, a secret and sinister incentive, which, had Tarzan of the apes had knowledge of it, would have sent him at the other's throat in jealous rage. Taglet was no longer young, but he was still a formidable beast, mightily muscled, cruel, and because of his greater experience, crafty and cunning. Two, he was of giant proportions, the very weight of his huge bulk serving oft-times to discount in his favor the superior agility of a younger antagonist. Taglet was of a morose and sullen disposition that marked him even among his frowning fellows, where such characteristics are the rule rather than the exception, and, though Tarzan did not guess it, 
He hated the ape-man with a ferocity that he was able to hide only because the dominant spirit of the nobler creature had inspired within him a species of dread which was as powerful as it was inexplicable to him. These two, then, were to be Tarzan's companions upon his return to the village of Achmet-Zek. As they set off, the balance of the tribe vouchsafed them but a parting stare, and then resumed the serious business of feeding. Tarzan found difficulty in keeping the minds of his fellows set upon the purpose of their adventure, for the mind of an ape lacks the power of long, sustained concentration. To set out upon a long journey, with a definite destination in view, is one thing. To remember that purpose, and keep it uppermost in one's mind continually, is quite another. There are so many things to distract one's attention along the way. Chulk was, at first, for rushing rapidly ahead, as though the village of the raiders lay but an hour's march before them, instead of several days. But within a few minutes a fallen tree attracted his attention, with its suggestion of a rich and succulent forage beneath. And when Tarzan, missing him, returned in search, he found Chulk, he found Chulk squatting beside the rotting bowl, from beneath which he was assiduously engaged in digging out the grubs and beetles, whose kind form a considerable proportion of the diet of an ape. Unless Tarzan desired to fight, there was nothing to do but wait until Chulk had exhausted his storehouse. And this he did, only to discover that Tagbet was now missing. After a considerable search, he found that worthy gentleman contemplating the sufferings of an injured rodent he had pounced upon. He would sit in apparent indifference, gazing in another direction, while the crippled creature wriggled slowly and painfully away from him, and then, just as his victim felt assured of escape, he would reach out a giant palm and slam it down upon the fugitive. Again and again he repeated this operation, until, tiring of the sport, he ended the sufferings of his plaything by devouring it. Such were the exasperating causes of delay which retarded Tarzan's return journey toward the village of Achmet-Zek. But the ape-man was patient, for in his mind was a plan which necessitated the presence of Chulk and Taglet when he did arrive at his destination. It was not always an easy thing to maintain in the vacillating minds of the anthropoids a sustained interest in their venture. Chulk was wearying of the continued marching and the infrequency and short duration of the rest. He would gladly have abandoned this search for adventure had not Tarzan continually filled his mind with alluring pictures of the great stores of food which were to be found in the village of Tarmangani. Taglet nursed his secret purpose to better advantage than might have been expected of an ape. Yet there were times when he, too, would have abandoned the adventure had not Tarzan cajoled him on. It was mid-afternoon of a sultry, tropical day when the keen senses of the three warned them of the proximity of the Arab camp. Stealthily they approached, keeping to the dense tangle of growing things which made concealment easy to their uncanny jungle craft. First came the giant ape-man, his smooth brown skin glistening with the sweat of exertion in the close, hot confines of the jungle. Behind him crept Chulk and Taglet, grotesque and shaggy caricatures of their godlike leader. Silently they made their way to the edge of the clearing which surrounded the palisade, and here they clambered into the lower branches of a large tree overlooking the village occupied by the enemy, the better to spy upon his comings and goings.
a horseman, white burnoosed, rode out through the gateway of the village. Tarzan, whispering to Chulk and Taglet to remain where they were, swung, monkey-like, through the trees in the direction of the trail the Arab was riding. From one jungle giant to the next, he sped with the rapidity of a squirrel and the silence of a ghost. The Arab rode slowly onward, unconscious of the danger hovering in the trees behind him. The ape-man made a slight detour and increased his speed until he had reached a point upon the trail in advance of the horseman. Here he halted upon a leafy bough which overhung the narrow jungle trail. On came the victim, humming a wild air of the great desert land of the north. Above him poised the savage brute that was today bent upon the destruction of a human life, the same creature who a few months before had occupied his seat in the House of Lords at London, a respected and distinguished member of the august body. The Arab passed beneath the overhanging bough. There was a slight rustling of the leaves above. The horse snorted and plunged as a brown-skinned creature dropped upon his rump. A pair of mighty arms encircled the Arab, and he was dragged from his saddle to the trail. Ten minutes later the ape-man, carrying the outer garments of an Arab bundled beneath an arm, rejoined his companions. He exhibited his trophies to them, explaining in low gutturals the details of his exploit. Chulk and Taglet fingered the fabrics, smelled of them, and, placing them to their ears, tried to listen to them. Then Tarzan led them back through the jungle to the trail, where the three hid themselves and waited. Nor had they long to wait before two of Ahmed Zek's natives, clothed in habiliments similar to their masters, came down the trail on foot, returning to the camp. One moment they were laughing and talking together. The next they lay stretched in death upon the trail, three mighty engines of destruction bending over them. Tarzan removed their outer garments as he had removed those of his first victim, and again retired with Chulk and Taglet to the greater seclusion of the trees they had first selected. Here the ape-man arranged the garments upon his shaggy fellows and himself, until, at a distance, it might have appeared that three white-robed Arabs squatted silently among the branches of the forest. Until dark they remained where they were, far from his point of vantage. Tarzan could view the enclosure within the palisade. He marked the position of the hut in which he had first discovered the scent spoor of the she he sought. He saw the two sentries standing before its doorway, and he located the habitation of Ahmed Zek, where something told him he would most likely find the missing pouch and pebbles. Chulk and Taglet were, at first, greatly interested in their wonderful raiment. They fingered the fabric, smelled of it, and regarded each other intently with every mark of satisfaction and pride. Chulk, a humorist in his way, stretched forth a long and hairy arm, and grasping the hood of Taglet's burnous, pulled it down over the latter's eyes, extinguishing him, snuffer-like, as it were. The older ape, pessimistic by nature, realized no such thing as humor. Creatures laid their paws upon him for but two things, to search for fleas, and to attack. The pulling of the Tarmangani-scented thing about his head and eyes could not be for the performance of the former act. Therefore it must be the latter. He was attacked. Chulk had attacked him. With a snarl he was at the other's throat, not even waiting to lift the woolen veil which obscured his vision. Tarzan leaped upon the two, and swaying and toppling upon their insecure perch, 
the three great beasts tussled and snapped at one another until the ape-man finally succeeded in separating the enraged anthropoids. As apology is unknown to these savage progenitors of man, and explanation a laborious and usually futile process, Tarzan bridged the dangerous gulf by distracting their attention from their altercation to a consideration of their plans for the immediate future. Accustomed to frequent arguments in which more hair than blood is wasted, the apes speedily forget such trivial encounters, and presently Chulk and Taglet were again squatted in close proximity to each other in peaceful repose, awaiting the moment when the ape-man should lead them into the village of the Tarmangani. It was long after darkness had fallen that Tarzan led his companions from their hiding-place in the tree to the ground and around the palisade to the far side of the village. Gathering the skirts of his burnous beneath one arm, that his legs might have free action, the ape-man took a short running start and scrambled to the top of the barrier. Fearing lest the apes should rend their garments to shreds in a similar attempt, he had directed them to wait below for him, and himself securely perched upon the summit of the palisade, he unslung his spear and lowered one end of it to choke. The ape seized it, and while Tarzan held tightly to the upper end, the anthropoid climbed quickly up the shaft until with one paw he grasped the top of the wall. To scramble then to Tarzan's side was the work of but an instant. In like manner Taglet was conducted to their sides, and a moment later the three dropped silently within the enclosure. Tarzan led them first to the rear of the hut in which Jane Clayton was confined, where, through the roughly repaired aperture in the wall, he sought with his sensitive nostrils for proof that the she he had come for was within. Chulk and Taglet, their hairy faces pressed close to that of the patrician, sniffed with him. Each caught the scent spore of the woman within, and each reacted according to his temperament and his habits of thought. It left Chulk indifferent. The she was for Tarzan. All that he desired was to bury a snout in the foodstuffs of the Tarmangani. He had come to eat his fill without labor. Tarzan had told him that that should be his reward, and he was satisfied. But Taglet's wicked, bloodshot eyes narrowed to the realization of the nearing fulfillment of his carefully nursed plan. It is true that sometimes during the several days that had elapsed since they had set out upon their expedition, it had been difficult for Taglet to hold his idea uppermost in his mind, and on several occasions he had completely forgotten it until Tarzan, by a chance word, had recalled it to him. But, for an ape, Taglet had done well. Now he licked his chops, and he made a sickening, sucking noise with his flabby lips as he drew in his breath. Satisfying that the she was where he had hoped to find her, Tarzan led his apes toward the tent of Ahmed Zek. A passing Arab and two slaves saw them, but the night was dark, and the white burnooses had the hairy limbs of the apes and the giant figure of their leader, so that the three, by squatting down as though in conversation, were passed by, unsuspected. To the rear of the tent they made their way. Within, Ahmed Zek conversed with several of his lieutenants. Without, Tarzan listened. We'll return with Chapter 17, The Deadly Peril of Jane Clayton, went after these sponsor messages. And now Chapter 17, The Deadly Peril of Jane Clayton. Lieutenant Albert Werper, 
terrified by contemplation of the fate which might await him at Addis Abeba, cast about for some scheme of escape. But after the black Mugambi had eluded their vigilance, the Abyssinians redoubled their precautions to prevent Werper following the lead of the Negro. For some time, Werper entertained the idea of bribing Abdul Morak with a portion of the contents of the pouch. But fearing that the man would demand all the gems as the price of liberty, the Belgian, influenced by avarice, sought another avenue from his dilemma. It was then that there dawned upon him the possibility of the success of a different course which would still leave him in possession of the jewels, while at the same time satisfying the greed of the Abyssinian with the conviction that he had obtained all that Werper had to offer. And so it was that a day or so after Mugambi had disappeared, Werper asked for an audience with the Abdul Morak. As the Belgian entered the presence of his captor, the scowl upon the features of the latter boded ill for any hope which Werper might entertain. Still he fortified himself by recalling the common weakness of mankind, which permits the most inflexible of natures to bend to the consuming desire for wealth. Abdul Morak eyed him, frowningly. "'What do you want now?' he asked. "'My liberty,' replied Werper. The Abyssinian sneered. "'And you disturbed me thus to tell me what any fool might know?' he said. "'I can pay for it,' said Werper. Abdul Morak laughed loudly. "'Pay for it!' he cried. "'What with? The rags that you have upon your back? "'Or perhaps you are concealing beneath your coat a thousand pounds of ivory. "'Get out! You're a fool! Do not bother me again, or I shall have you whipped!' But Werper persisted. His liberty, and perhaps his life, depended upon his success. "'Listen to me!' he pleaded. "'If I can give you as much gold as ten men may carry, will you promise that I shall be conducted in safety to the nearest English commissioner?' "'As much gold as ten men may carry,' repeated Abdul Morak. "'You're crazy! Where have you got so much gold as that?' "'I know where it is hid,' said Werper. "'Promise, and I will lead you to it, "'if ten loads is enough.' "'Abdul Morak had ceased to laugh. "'He was eyeing the Belgian intently. "'The fellow seemed sane enough. "'Yet ten loads of gold? "'It was preposterous. "'The Abyssinian thought in silence for a moment. "'The Abyssinian thought in silence for a moment. "'Well,' "'And if I promise,' he said, "'how far is this gold?' "'A week's march to the south,' replied Werper. "'And if we do not find it where you say it is, "'do you realize what your punishment will be?' "'If it is not there, I will forfeit my life,' replied the Belgian. "'I know it is there, for I saw it buried with my own eyes. "'And more. "'There are not only ten loads, but as many as fifty men can carry.' "'It's all yours, if you will promise to see me safely delivered "'into the protection of the English. "'You will stake your life against the finding of the gold?' asked Abdul. "'Werper assented with a nod. "'Very well,' said the Abyssinian. "'I promise. "'And even if there be but five loads, you shall have your freedom. "'But until the gold is in my possession, you remain a prisoner.' "'I am satisfied.' said Werper. We start tomorrow? 
Abdul Morak nodded, and the Belgian returned to his guards. The following day the Abyssinian soldiers were surprised to receive an order which turned their faces from the northeast to the south. And so it happened that upon the very night that Tarzan and the two apes entered the village of the raiders, the Abyssinians camped but a few miles to the east of the same spot. While Werper dreamed of freedom and the unmolested enjoyment of the fortune in his stolen pouch, and Abdul Morak lay awake in greedy contemplation of the fifty loads of gold which lay but a few days farther to the south of him, Ahmed Zek gave orders to his lieutenants that they should prepare a force of fighting men and carriers to proceed to the ruins of the Englishman's door on the morrow, and bring back the fabulous fortune which his renegade lieutenant had told him was buried there. And as he delivered his instructions to those within, a silent listener crouched without his tent, waiting for the time when he might enter in safety and prosecute his search for the missing pouch and the pretty pebbles that had caught his fancy. At last the swarthy companions of Ahmed Zek quitted his tent, and the leader went with them to smoke a pipe with one of their number, leaving his own silken habitation unguarded. Scarcely had they left the interior when a knife-blade was thrust through the fabric of the rear wall, some six feet above the ground, and a swift downward stroke opened an entrance to those who waited beyond. Through the opening stepped the ape-man, and close behind him came the huge chulk, but Taglet did not follow them. Instead, he turned and slunk through the darkness where the she who had arrested his brutish interest lay securely bound. Before the doorway, the sentry sat upon their haunches, conversing in monotones. Within, the young woman lay upon a filthy sleeping mat, resigned, through utter hopelessness, to whatever fate lay in store for her, until the opportunity arrived which would permit her to free herself by the only means which now seemed even remotely possible. The hitherto detested act of self-destruction. Creeping silently toward the sentries, a white brunished figure approached the shadows at one end of the hut. The meager intellect of the creature denied it the advantage it might have taken of its disguise. Where it could have walked boldly to the very sides of the sentries, it chose rather to sneak up upon them, unseen from the rear. It came to the corner of the hut and peered around. The sentries were but a few paces away, but the ape did not dare expose himself, even for an instant, to those feared and hated thunder-sticks which the Tarmangani knew so well how to use, if there were another and safer method of attack. Taglet wished that there was a tree nearby from offering some overhanging branches from which he might spring upon his unsuspecting prey. But, though there was no tree, the idea gave birth to a plan. The eaves of the hut were just above the heads of the sentries. From them he could leap upon the Tarmangani, unseen. A quick snap of those two mighty jaws would dispose of one of them before the other realized that they were attacked, and the second would fall an easy prey to the strength, agility, and ferocity of a second quick charge. Taglet withdrew a few paces to the rear of the hut, gathered himself for the effort, ran quickly forward, and leaped high into the air. He struck the roof directly above the rear wall of the hut, and the structure, reinforced by the wall beneath, held his enormous weight for an instant. Then he moved forward a step, the roof sagged, the thatching parted, and the great anthropoid shot through into the interior. The sentries, hearing the crashing of the roof poles, leaped to their feet and rushed into the hut. 
Jane Clayton tried to roll aside as the great form lit upon the floor so close to her that one foot pinned her clothing to the ground. The ape, feeling the movement beside him, reached down and gathered the girl in the hollow of one mighty arm. The burnoose covered the hairy body, so that Jane Clayton believed that a human arm supported her, and from the extremity of hopelessness a great hope sprang into her breast that at last she was in the keeping of her rescuer. The two sentries were now within the hut, but hesitating because of doubt as to the nature of the cause of the disturbance. Their eyes, not yet accustomed to the darkness of the interior, told them nothing, nor did they hear any sound, for the ape stood silently awaiting their attack. Seeing that they stood without advancing, and realizing that, handicapped as he was by the weight of the she, he could put up but a poor battle, Taglet elected to risk a sudden break for liberty. Lowering his head, he charged straight for the two sentries who blocked the doorway. The impact of his mighty shoulders bowled them over upon their backs, and before they could scramble to their feet, the ape was gone, darted in the shadows of the huts toward the palisade at the far end of the village. The speed and strength of her rescuer filled Jane Clayton with wonder. Could it be that Tarzan had survived the bullet of the Arab? Who else in all the jungle could bear the weight of a grown woman as lightly as he who held her? She spoke his name, but there was no response. Still, she did not give up hope. At the palisade the beast did not even hesitate. A single mighty leap carried it to the top, where it poised but for an instant before dropping to the ground upon the opposite side. Now the girl was almost positive that she was safe in the arms of her husband, and when the ape took to the trees and bore her swiftly into the jungle, as Tarzan had done at other times in the past, belief became conviction. In a little moonlit glade, a mile or so from the camp of the raiders, her rescuer halted and dropped her to the ground. His roughness surprised her, but still she had no doubts. Again she called him by name, and at the same instant the ape, fretting under the restraints of the unaccustomed garments of the Tarmangani, tore the burnoose from him, revealing to the eyes of the horror-struck woman the hideous face and hairy form of the giant anthropoid. With a piteous wail of terror, Jane Clayton swooned, while, from the concealment of a nearby bush, Numa the lion eyed the pair hungrily and licked his chops. Tarzan, entering the tent of Ahmed Zek, searched the interior thoroughly. He tore the bed to pieces and scattered the contents of box and bag about the floor. He investigated whatever his eyes discovered, nor did those keen organs overlook a single article within the habitation of the raider chief. But no pouch or pretty pebbles rewarded his thoroughness. Satisfied at last that his belongings were not in the possession of Ahmed Zek, unless they were on the person of the chief himself, Tarzan decided to secure the person of the she before further prosecuting the search for the pouch. Motioning for Choke to follow him, he passed out of the tent by the same way that he had entered it, and walking boldly through the village, made directly for the hut where Jane Clayton had been imprisoned. He noted with surprise the absence of Taglet, whom he had expected to find awaiting him outside the tent of Ahmed Zek, but, accustomed as he was to the unreliability of apes, he gave no serious attention to the present defection of his surly companion. So long as Taglet did not cause interference with his plans, Tarzan was indifferent to his absence. As he approached the hut, 
the ape-man noticed that a crowd had collected about the entrance. He could see that the men who composed it were much excited, and fearing lest Chulk's disguise should prove inadequate to the concealment of his true identity in the face of so many observers, he commanded the ape to betake himself to the far end of the village, and there await him. As Chulk waddled off, keeping to the shadows, Tarzan advanced boldly toward the excited group before the doorway of the hut. He mingled with the blacks and the Arabs in an endeavor to learn the cause of the commotion. In his interest, forgetting that he alone of the assemblage carried a spear, a bow, and arrows, and thus might become an object of suspicious attention. Shouldering his way through the crowd, he approached the doorway, and he had almost reached it when one of the Arabs laid a hand upon his shoulder, crying, "'Who is this?' at the same time snatching back the hood from the ape-man's face. Tarzan of the apes, in all his savage life, had never been accustomed to pause in argument with an antagonist. The primitive instinct of self-preservation acknowledges many arts and wiles, but argument is not one of them. Nor did he now waste precious time in an attempt to convince the raiders that he was not a wolf in sheep's clothing. Instead, he had his unmasker by the throat ere the man's words had scarce quitted his lips, and hurling him from side to side, brushed away those who would have swarmed upon him. Using the Arab as a weapon, Tarzan forced his way quickly to the doorway, and a moment later was within the hut. A hasty examination revealed the fact that it was empty, and his sense of smell discovered, too, the scent spore of Taglet, the ape. Tarzan uttered a low, ominous growl. Those who were pressing forward at the doorway to seize him fell back as the savage notes of the bestial challenge smote upon their ears. They looked at one another in surprise and consternation. A man had entered the hut alone, and yet with their own ears they had heard the voice of a wild beast within. What could it mean? Had a lion or a leopard sought sanctuary in the interior, unbeknown to the sentries? Tarzan's quick eyes discovered the opening in the roof through which Taglet had fallen. He guessed that the ape had either come or gone by way of the break, and while the Arabs hesitated without, he sprang, cat-like, for the opening, grasped the top of the wall, and clambered out upon the roof, dropping instantly to the ground at the rear of the hut. When the Arabs finally mustered courage to enter the hut, after firing several volleys through the walls, they found the interior deserted. At the same time Tarzan, at the far end of the village, sought for Chulk, but the ape was nowhere to be found. Robbed of his she, deserted by his companions, and as much in ignorance as ever as to the whereabouts of his pouch and pebbles, it was an angry Tarzan who climbed the palisade and vanished into the darkness of the jungle. For the present he must give up the search for his pouch, since it would be paramount to self-destruction to enter the Arab camp now while all its inhabitants were aroused and upon the alert. In his escape from the village, the ape-man had lost the spoor of the fleeing taglet, and now he circled widely through the forest in an endeavor to again pick it up. Chulk had remained at his post until the cries and shots of the Arabs had filled his simple soul with terror, for above all things the ape-folk feared the thunder-sticks of the Tarmangani. Then he had clambered nimbly over the palisade, tearing his burnoose in the effort, and fled into the depths of the jungle, "'grumbling and scolding as he went. "'Tarzan, roaming the jungle in search of the trail of Taglet and the she, "'traveled swiftly. "'In the little moonlit glade ahead of him, 
the great ape was bending over the prostrate form of the woman Tarzan sought. The beast was tearing at the bonds that confined her ankles and wrists, pulling and gnawing upon the cords. The course the ape-man was taking would carry him but a short distance to the right of them, and though he could not have seen them, the wind was bearing down from them to him, carrying their scent spores strongly toward him. A moment more, and Jane Clayton's safety might have been assured, even though Numa, the lion, was already gathering himself in preparation for a charge. But fate, already all too cruel, now outdid herself. The wind veered suddenly for a few moments. The scent spore that would have led the ape-man to the girl's side was wafted in the opposite direction. Tarzan passed within fifty yards of the tragedy that was being enacted in the glade, and the opportunity was gone beyond recall. Thanks for joining us today for chapters 16 and 17 of Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar. We'll return next week Sunday at noon with more of our story. Until then, everyone, we always appreciate reviews and we appreciate your sharing our show with others. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll be back soon.